China's influence is rising, but how is that changing the countries around it? I'm Reed Standish, and this is Talking China in Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing's rise is shifting the balance of power. What does 2023 hold for China in Central Asia? After a year where Russia's invasion of Ukraine upended the status quo in Eurasia and saw Xi Jinping secure a new five-year term as China's leader, what can we expect from the coming year and how might China adapt to the changing reality on the ground? I'm Radio Free Europe correspondent Reid Standish, and joining me today from Almaty, Kazakhstan, is Radio Free Europe Central Asia correspondent Chris Rickleton, and from Washington, the Wilson Center's Bradley Jardin. Chris, Bradley, thanks a lot for joining me today. So uh, I want to begin today's episode by talking about the big event that Beijing has found itself navigating across Central Asia in 2022 and continues to in 2023, the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion has left many countries reevaluating their ties with Russia and looking for alternatives. And across Central Asia, governments are walking a tightrope over how to distance and insulate themselves from Moscow. This makes China, which already is an economic force in the region, appealing because of its close relationship with Russia. So Chris... You're based in Kazakhstan, and you've been reporting from the region for years. Bring us up to speed on how the war in Ukraine has changed things across Central Asia and what that might mean for China. Thanks very much for having me, Reid. Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, this year has been a very turbulent one for Central Asia, both for internal uh, reasons uh, in the in the countries of the region. But uh, the background has has definitely been the uh, the war in Ukraine, and I would say that this has had uh, a very uh, pointed effect on Kazakhstan, in particular, being the only country in the region that uh, shares a border with uh, with, with Russia. So uh, Kazakhstan's probably uh, had more fallout uh, than other countries, and uh, perhaps more fear in terms of uh, what, what Russia might be able to do uh, Chris, in the Chris, near can you, can yeah. you de- Sorry to interrupt, but can you describe a bit, what is that fear and what is that fallout uh, that's, that's on ca- the, you know, the leadership in, in Astana's minds that you're getting at? Well, I think the fear is a very concrete fear of a potential invasion, uh, such as uh, the one seen in Ukraine, because... Uh, uh, as you well know, as you've also written about, the noises coming from Moscow, often not from uh, uh, the Kremlin itself, but from figures very close to the Kremlin, uh, hasn't been very flattering about Kazakhstan, uh, often talking about uh, territories within Kazakhstan and uh, their historic links to to, to Russia, the uh, the large ethnic Slav population in the north. Uh, and threats, often uh, very direct threats from uh, pundits, uh, Russian lawmakers, uh, to the effect that uh, Kazakhstan could be dealing with uh, the kind of things that Ukraine is is dealing with if it doesn't behave itself, if it doesn't uh, remember its friendship with Russia. So uh, this has certainly rattled the the Kazakh leadership no end. And in this sense... Uh, China's a very important buffer because uh, what Ukraine doesn't have that Kazakhstan does have is uh, China uh, as a neighbor. And China's obviously a very important country, uh, both in terms of its economic heft, uh, 
and as you mentioned in terms of its relationship with Russia and the way Russia views it, its importance to Russia. Uh, so I think one of the you know one of the most important uh, events of the year for Kazakhstan was Xi Jinping's visit uh, to Nur Sultan or Astana as it's now called uh, to to meet with uh, President uh, Kasim Jomart Tokayev and and basically get that um, not so much an assurance of territorial integrity in terms of how it was said but that that show of support. Uh, this idea that Kazakhstan is a very important country for China in the region and, and not a country that it wants to see destabilized. And that was a very important message to Moscow. And I think after that, uh, some of the noise that we saw coming from Moscow towards Kazakhstan dimmed down. There weren't maybe uh, the same kind of outlandish comments that that we'd seen in the months building up to that meeting. So it did have an effect. Uh, I think it's something that uh, the Kremlin takes into account, and I think it's something that for Kazakhstan is very important to have. Uh, I think the other countries of the region, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, haven't felt the full force uh, of of Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine. Even things like uh, inflation have been slightly less in those countries than, than in Kazakhstan, although very high, uh, and that's a direct consequence in some ways uh, of the war of U- in the war of Ukraine. But it's been a very uh, difficult and, and turbulent diplomatic environment to negotiate, I guess, uh, and that's where China being China is, is important to them because uh, with, with Beijing, the diplomatic relationship uh, stays more or less the same. That's not to say that uh, China will uh, never have its own red lines. You know, things like Taiwan and, and, and Xinjiang uh, have started to come into uh, its its diplomacy so much more, including with the region. Uh, but still, uh, I think it's a partner that Central Asia kind of knows what it's going to get um and and that that stability has been very important during a very difficult year right i can imagine wanting to to have a bit of uh more predictability in the region especially from you know one of the the two big powers that are along central asia's borders so bradley i want to bring you into the conversation here i know you've recently just come back from a months-long research trip uh, around the region where you're looking into china and its footprint in central asia so i'm you know piggybacking off of what chris has just said you know tell us about what you learned on your travels and what that says about china's influence in the coming year yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, uh, Reid. Um, I agree a lot with uh, what what Chris said. Um, Kazakhstan definitely um, has been the most clearly impacted in its relations with Russia. It's the most um, fearful of any um, unrest um, coming from Russia. And there was quite a diversity of opinions um, across the region. Um, it seems that Tajikistan, in particular is increasingly receptive to more um, security from China, more cooperation in that respect, which you know matches with a pattern that's been in place since at least 2016, where China's began repurposing border facilities. Um, I did some visiting of those actually um, as I was traveling around the Pamirs. Um, I visited some of the 
facilities that China has been building up near the, the edge of the, the Wakan corridor. And you can also see the neutral border zones that they've been constructing. So China's security presence in Tajikistan has been a long-growing trend, but I'm hearing a lot from interviews that we've been conducting as part of an Oxus Society project. Um, there are a lot of closed-door discussions about having further cooperation with China. And some of it is, of course, to um, lessen dependence on Russia with regard to security. In Uzbekistan, you see far more pragmatic relations, as you'd um, come to expect from it, from Uzbekistan. Economically, it's been far less hit, as Chris noted, um, than Kazakhstan. Actually, trade has increased quite dramatically. The number of um, laborers working in Russia has increased, and inflation hasn't been as bad as in Kazakhstan, although still quite high. Parts of Tashkent um, property prices are still, you know, up by 30%. So there was a lot of discussion about um, Russians living in the city, putting putting prices up, that sort of thing, negative perceptions. Um, less so in Dushanbe, there was a short spike um, when I first arrived. Um, that was just after the mobilizations um, had been called. But that trend uh, declined quite quite quickly. So inflation there has been um, far less, and so that there's been less, um, you know, domestic uh, criticism at the the popular level. It's more elite level maneuverings that seem to be taking shape quite quickly with Tajikistan. I will note though that speaking with experts across the region, the clear finding is that. Rather than being a watershed, the conflict for China, the conflict in Ukraine's really just accelerated trends that had long been underway. You know, we've been commenting on this for a while that this traditional conceptualization of some division of labor between Russia and China in terms of security and economics has been challenged for quite some time. And I think we can expect a lot more of that. One thing China will have to navigate is of course popular um, criticism of China. Sinophobia was definitely very high um, from my interviews across the region. A lot of criticism, a lot of um, pointed comments that China's relationship is purely extractive and focused only on resources, which you can see that China's aware of this. And I think that this will be a big shift in its strategy moving forward will be moving from extractive to more productive and helping the Central Asian economies develop up the supply chain. Well, Bradley, if I can uh, jump in here, I mean, that's one thing that I, I mean, I'm very curious to ask you about um, and get it to explain a bit more. You know, obviously, I think one of the big things that, uh, you know, China's presence in Central Asia has been known for is, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, that's one of the places where where she came and, you know, launched it back in 2013. This was, you know, in Kazakhstan. Um, and over the years, you know, it's been it's been focused. OK, China's interested in resources. It's interested in minerals. It's looking to use Central Asia as this kind of springboard for this big infrastructure and, you know, trade mission that it has um, you know, broadly across Eurasia, connecting Western China to Europe. But, you know, as you're getting to, you know, okay, there's, there's still the attitudes on the ground and maybe a lot of people, the, the political leadership, the elites, you know, they might be quite receptive to this type of stuff. But, you know, the, the working assumption, which at least, um, you know, held true when, when I lived and worked in Central Asia was always that attitudes on the ground are still, you know, either apathetic or, or even outright hostile towards China. You know, it's something that I think we've 
all seen and encountered probably many times. But, you know, I'm very curious, you know, you're kind of talking about, okay, China's Beijing might be looking for ways to try to change this, you know, and I'm curious just in general, I mean, do you think that this as an assumption, you know, given all that we're talking about how we need to reevaluate all these other assumptions, does that still hold true today? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I, I definitely noticed um, a variety of opinions um, across the region. Um, in Tajikistan, for example, you know, I've long thought that infrastructure construction is, is one of these uh, thankless tasks. You know, you invest a lot in it and it, it has less soft power impact than, than one would expect. But actually, some of those assumptions were challenged, particularly in the Pamir region, where constantly and my interactions with people in, in small towns, I was just hearing time and time again about the industriousness of China, how much help they've done for local communities, and just compliments constantly about the, the quality of the roads and the bridges that are being built around that area. So I think that was like one of these areas where you really see a once quite disconnected, very difficult, arduous journeys um, for people traveling between towns, and those commutes have been immediately improved. And that immediate impact on people's lifestyles actually has had um, quite positive receptions for China. And this matches with a lot of the Central Asia barometer reports of late that, that views in Tajikistan are actually much more positive than the rest of the region. I found that my anecdotal kind of conversations seem to confirm that. In Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, you just see a lot more hostility, a lot more um, conspiracy theories, particularly in Kazakhstan. Um, and a lot of it relates to, you know, quite legitimate criticisms about corruption, um, local environmental damage. I mean, I spoke with oil workers, people who worked for Chinese intermediary companies in the energy sector. You know, they tell anecdotal stories about how their management would refuse to repair parts of machinery. They try to use the machinery until a point where, until it really does need to be replaced. This creates danger in the workplace and environmental damage. So you see these kind of um, anecdotal remarks about how there's a lack of concern for, um, you know, the well-being of workers or the well-being of the environments in which they operate. So this is going to be a problem that China is going to have to navigate. And I think that this is why there's now a shift to less focus on extractive, but more towards skills development and training. We're seeing this with the launches of the Luban workshops, which are now spreading to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. There's been one in Tajikistan. And we're going to see a lot more vocational training, investments as well from Chinese tech companies that are now offering a lot of scholarships, training programs to come to China. Um, so I would expect more of this as a way to offset criticisms about an extractive economic uh, relationship. Okay, thanks, Bradley. Um, just a reminder for anyone listening to us live right now, if you want to come in with a question, we'll be taking those soon. So please, you can raise your hand here on the Twitter Spaces function, and we'll be happy to bring you into the broader uh, discussion. Um, Chris, um, you know, Bradley was just talking a lot there, you know, we're, we're getting a bit more of that on the ground view, but if I can, you know, zoom back a little bit with yourself, you know, what are the big ticket, big ticket items on your radar for 2023? You know, we already this year, you know, we saw a state visit from the president of Turkmenistan, which is obviously an important energy partner for, for China. Um, in September, you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, we had a, a, an important Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan, which was 
uh, part of Xi's first trip abroad uh, since COVID and was obviously quite symbolic. So, I mean, what are the big themes and the big topics that are getting your attention in 2023? Well, uh, yeah, thanks for the question, Reid. I think, uh, as always, <clears throat> the SEO Summit uh, uh, is something that's going to attract a lot of attention and you know it, it's one of those events we don't often hear about uh, all of the deals signed on the day sometimes uh, the information about them filters out in in the kind of uh, days and weeks after the summit itself but it's clear that you know this is very much uh, China's show um, and uh, there's a real buzz and excitement about it especially if you compare it to other regional organization summits uh, like uh, this, the CSTO or the CIS, where uh, basically there's, there's not a lot of money moving around. Um, we had, uh, you know, last year the, the kind of remarkable interchange between, well, not really an interchange, uh, the, 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 the situation where, where Rahman was uh, criticizing Putin and saying, well, basically, you know, nothing happens here this is this is a talking shop whereas uh the sco remains a forum where okay maybe uh the work is done bilaterally between china and the other countries in the build up to the summit but uh but you know th there is a lot of action uh, there's a lot of uh deals happening uh in in different sectors so this is something that's always going to be looked at uh as you mentioned for Turkmenistan, the priority is, is just to get China to buy more gas. Uh, it's a very simple, uh, simple equation for that country, I think. For the countries that border China, uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, I think, uh, you know, what they're, what they're looking forward to and what they're enjoying now is, is like the slow uh, return of, of normal trade. Uh, with China, because uh, obviously you had the coronavirus pandemic uh, in 2021. A lot of uh, intermediaries, uh, logistic companies that worked with Kazakhstan and, uh, of course, end consumers, companies, importers, uh, uh, importing into Kazakhstan from China, uh, were complaining about rule changes. Uh, some of it was connected to COVID. Some of it just seemed fairly arbitrary on the Chinese side that had led to uh, big delays, uh, importing, rising prices. Uh, 2022, we're seeing trade normalize a little bit. And maybe this year we'll see more in terms of shuttle trade as, uh, you know, hopefully uh, this, this kind of zero COVID uh, nightmare ends in China. So I think... Um, those countries, the partic particularly the ones that, that border China, are looking for kind of more people-to-people -people contact for the ordinary uh, population, uh, which has been something that's been difficult in China, especially since 2016 with uh, the situation in, in Xinjiang. Uh, and the countries of the region as a whole are looking for more investments. Maybe China doesn't want to do the, the huge investments like the, the Central Asia China pipeline, uh, anymore, but there's a lot it can do in terms of uh, little investments, particularly green energy. Uh, you've got wind farms in, in, in Kazakhstan now. You've got a, a solar project in Uzbekistan, at least one. Um, China's by no means completely dominating this, but it's an important part of the puzzle uh, 
especially in energy, I would say, because uh, the region is is really struggling on that front at the moment. Okay, that's really interesting, Chris. Um, I mean, it is it is interesting to see just like this evolving snapshot that's been been happening. And I think, as you've rightly pointed out, actually, as much as you know, we're talking about the this big you know kind of deepening footprint from from China with this region next door. But you know, we've had as, as you said since 2016, we've had the events in Xinjiang, which is you know very much limited that people to people talk uh, contact. And then obviously since the pandemic, I mean, China has in a lot of ways been, you know, its borders have been quite literally sealed. And, um, you know, it's been very difficult for people to come and go from there. Um, so Bradley, um, you know, I think that this gets into, you know, something again, that's a bit more big picture. But, you know, this this comes up a lot, you know, when people talk it, they're looking ahead, they're talking about, you know, what kind of leadership role could Beijing see for itself in Central Asia? And how could that be balanced, especially with this likely, Diminished, but still quite potent Russia coming out from the war of Ukraine. Um, you know, we're certainly seeing more countries. They're looking to Beijing these days. But how does that region look from China's perspective? And perhaps more importantly, what do you think China really wants from Central Asia? Yeah, thanks. That's a great, great question. Um, of course, China has very unique interests in Central Asia that make Central Asia distinct from other parts of the world in which it operates. And of course, that's its long contiguous border with Xinjiang and the ways in which China views its security, internal security and its interests within Xinjiang um, as tied in with its economic and political relations with Central Asia. So, I mean, not to give too much of a historic overview, but just broad takeaways from their interactions in the 1990s. You know, China's early engagements were about pacifying the potential for um, any political movements to be active in Central Asia. So, of course, Central Asia has a, a large Uyghur diaspora of some 300,000 people. China wanted to ensure their um, pacification quite early, in addition to resolving long-standing border conflicts. Um, between the Central Asian republics and China um, with respect to Xinjiang. Now we have far more complex picture. Of course, Xinjiang continues to, and the developments within Xinjiang continue to be a major driver of China's engagement with the region. There are, of course, broader interests as well, such as Central Asia is a, a major artery of the Belt and Road Initiative. There's a large number of Chinese um, infrastructure across the region, and of course, a large number of Chinese workers some of whom, you know, have been threatened in recent years during unrest, such as in Kyrgyzstan, where we had, um, you know, mass demonstrations where factories were overturned and workers were, were actually harmed. Some of them were left out in the cold and forests. Um, you know, these type of things that put a lot of pressure on the Chinese government to be more active in ensuring the security of its citizens. So this broad bucket of security interests will continue to um, influence the way that China engages with the region. And of course, the more economically intertwined China becomes with Central Asia, the more its security interests will also likely um, expand. So I think what China really wants from Central Asia um, is, of course, continued stability and insurances um, that the region complies um, with its wishes, particularly with respect to um, the Uyghur issue and ensuring um, compliance there with its values, particularly in terms of security, the promotion of counteracting the so-called three evils of terrorism, sceptism, and extremism. 
um, promoted by the SCO. And one of the other avenues I think we'll see increasing demands for compliance with will be for Central Asian governments to take a lead in combating anti-China sentiments. I think we've been seeing for the last couple of years now in discussions a lot more from the Chinese side in recognizing that this is becoming a problem and have been discussions about reaching common values and particularly common values in cyberspace. So I think that there may be a lot more demands for compliance and counteracting negative, negative perceptions. Okay. I mean, I, I think that that's sort of, you know, building on these, these trends that we've been seeing, um, seen elsewhere. So um, I, we're going to open up the, the floor now. So again, if, if anyone who's listening live wants to, to chime in with a question, please feel free to raise your hand. If not, I'm going to uh, turn the floor over to Chris, who I know um, can change the format around a little bit, and, and he can take over from host for a little bit. Uh, okay, if I can... Uh... If I can nip in with a, a question of my own, uh, then read. You've written a lot about Xi Jinping um, and uh, his importance uh, to the region. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose for, for most of us, uh, Xi Jinping's been the the dominant leader uh, in China uh, whilst we've been uh, studying the region. There was obviously this... Uh, disappearance that led to a lot of speculation on social media about uh, whether Xi Jinping had become had fallen victim to a coup or uh, just disappeared somewhere for a, for a short period of time as uh, Mr. Zbirdi Muhammadov and uh, Mr. Putin sometimes do. Uh, so I guess my question is a, a speculative one. Uh, what He's been so instrumental in things like the Belt and Road. Uh, obviously, uh, the nightmare in Xinjiang happened under his watch as well. If there was another leader in China, uh, not a Xi ally, uh, may maybe somebody uh, from a different faction inside the Chinese Communist Party, do you think the approach towards Central Asia would change or do you think it's now set and institutionalized, essentially? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, Chris. Um, you know, I, I would jump out and say, you know, just as kind of a matter of thumb, I mean, it doesn't seem, you know, I mean, granted, okay, the, the reading the tea leaves of what's happening in Beijing in the higher echelons on the Communist Party, I mean, it's, there are very few people in the world who really knows what, what, what's happening at that level, right? But um, you know, I think the rumors like that that happen in authoritarian systems are, you know, very much just the product of what happens when you have no information. It leads to misinformation, disinformation, and lies begin to get spread. And and also, I think it's a, a, a symptom of, you know, just a simple fact that, you know, anything is kind of believable to that degree. You know, like, I, I think you quite rightly described the situation in in Xinjiang as a nightmare. But I think from, you know, the the point of view of the the leadership in Beijing, you know, that was a, a pretty successful, uh, you know, that was what the plan was. They they managed to succeed. You know, they, they've managed to to um, to put things under control from a security point of view, from their point of view. 
um, regardless of all of the, you know, terrible uh, rights abuses and alleged atrocities that have gone on there. So, I mean, uh, to get to your, your, your more of a foreign policy question, I mean, I think... I think it's fair to say that things seem quite institutionalized, especially if we're talking about Central Asia. You know, I think if we're talking about other regions, you know, if we're talking about, okay, Chinese foreign policy, perhaps towards, um, you know, towards the United States um, or, um, you know, towards Europe or things like that, maybe that's not completely set in stone yet. There's things are a lot more in flux. There's a lot more factors, but I think one to the degree that you have the Central Asian leadership very much locked in on China, um, I think that that keeps it there. And then I think that, you know, this, I think from Beijing's point of view, they're getting what they want. And if it's not broken, don't fix it. This is a good foundation that they can keep uh, building on. So, um, yeah, I would say that it seems to me to be quite locked in right now. Um, So, okay, I see also now that I've finished up that, that we're getting a reader question. So um, this one comes from, Raffaello Pantucci, who is a, a friend of the podcast, um, his question is, what do you guys think is going to change in tangible terms uh, from the fallout of Ukraine? Um, Bradley, do you want to grab that one? Or Chris, whoever, jump ball, uh, whoever feels they want to grab that one. But what's, what, what's a real kind of tangible thing we could say will be uh, fallout from Ukraine if we're talking about China and Central Asia? Okay. Oh, this is Chris. This is your question. How about that? Uh, okay. Um, well, I mean, it's 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 a very it's one that's very difficult to predict. Um, if we're looking at uh, economic fallout, uh, we see that you know projected inflation for the countries of the region, uh, as well as Russia, is 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 lower this year uh, than than last year, but uh, still. In some cases, uh, level with growth or outpacing it. In many cases, outpacing it. Uh, so, so this is going to continue to be a persistent threat, I think, to governments of the region and just a really hard time for populations of the region. Whether there'll be any more curveballs coming uh, from the Ukraine war for the region will depend, I guess, if there's another round of mobilization. Um, I've got a friend who's a, a cafe owner in Almaty. Uh, he might be secretly hoping for another round of mobilization because uh, during the last round of mobilization, he he said he almost made back uh, half of the money that he lost during the pandemic. So it's been a really difficult time for, uh, you know, the hospitality industry, cafes, restaurants. Uh, so it's, it's just worth noting that although mobilization and things like that have caused a lot of upheaval for people, and uh, Bradley was mentioning the, the, the soaring rent prices in, in Tashkent, which I think was basically a direct result uh, of, of that, uh, there were opportunities as well. So uh, there, there are kind of every time there's a kind of round of fallout, if you like, uh, there are winners and losers from that. As to what China, uh, as to what China, China plays in terms of uh, any role, uh, I think you know, uh, just continuing to engage, uh, being the kind of stable force that it has been 
in in the past, of course, again, if we're going to talk about inflation because it's such an important story in Central Asia, China has uh, has controlled that over the years. It's it's kind of the passage of cheap goods from China has been a check uh, on inflation. So that's what Central Asian countries and and maybe Central Asian populations also are looking for is is some consistency because uh, you know many people. You know, it's not the case that everybody in the region has a has a kind of set view of of, of Russia and dislikes Russia. Uh, I think you know a lot of people once saw Russia as a source of stability, but uh, regardless of how people view uh, Russia, I don't think many people think that now because uh, you know every month. Firstly, you know, certainly for the first uh, half of the year, and then uh, Vladimir Putin's order on mobilization. Every development brought some kind of upheaval, and uh, obviously people are fed up of up- upheaval. Um, one thing China has done uh, in the past is stability. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point, Chris. Um, and just like uh, I guess, again, you know, we have the upheaval of the pandemic, the upheaval of the war. Um, you know. That's the other thing, you know, I think back to this time last year, you know, the January 2022 and everything going on in Kazakhstan um, and thinking of what I thought, you know, 2022 was going to look like January 1st versus how 2022 actually played out. And I think, you know, when we're talking about 2023, uh, that's also probably important to keep in mind, too, is, I mean, there's a lot more curveballs. There's a lot uh, of unexpected turns ahead, I would expect. Um, I actually have a question for for Chris that, um, you know, a bit of a follow up on what you you said in your last answer. You know, one thing that I've always been curious about is the uprooting of, you know, especially for some of the big international tech companies, which, you know, for the Russian speaking market, you know, dealing broadly with kind of the CIS countries, you know, obviously Moscow was the base of operations for a lot of that. Um, But we're also seeing that there's been a wave of relocation um, of some of those companies. Um, Some of it's still in the process of setting up, moving their offices from Russia to Central Asia with Kazakhstan, I think getting uh, a big chunk of it. I know, you know, uh, TikTok's Russia, Russia office is relocating to Kazakhstan. I think we're seeing that also with some different, uh, you know, Huawei is doing a similar thing. Um, but I'm curious, Chris, have you seen anything on that? Um, I'm just curious about, you know, you're talking about the cafe owner, but I mean, what about for, you know, some of those industries? I mean, are Central Asians kind of going to piggyback on getting some, becoming a new base for, you know, those big Chinese tech giants, um, you know, shifting over to Central Asia from Russia? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's a... Uh... There are opportunities here, and particularly Kazakhstan. I think uh, the disadvantage for some of the other countries, Uzbekistan has certainly used the uh, moment in Ukraine as a boost uh, for its own IT sector, uh, which was something that it wanted to do anyway. And suddenly you've got specialists arriving in Russia that can kind of uh, accelerate that process. Uh, but uh, I think some of these, you know, the companies that are leaving Russia might see uh, in Kyrgyzstan, um, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. We can unfortunately forget about Turkmenistan in that conversation. Uh, but, you know, they might see them as kind of immature markets uh, where perhaps uh, 
they don't have everything that they need uh, in Kazakhstan. That's that's not the case. Um, there is infrastructure there. Uh, there are you know there were just more business connections with Russia to begin with, so it was so much more convenient for those companies uh, to arrive. But I guess this is you know 2023 is the year uh, that we will see the fruits. Uh, of that because many of these companies uh, in driver and, and so on you know they've moved uh, I think in the second half of the year uh, some of them you know immediately after the invasion sent their uh, sent some of their workers here but now in terms of kind of like uh, f- full-scale relocations uh, it, it's it's early to say but uh, obviously it's it's a big opportunity uh, for Kazakhstan. Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, we have one more. This is, again, a follow-up from Raffaello. But this one, uh, Bradley, I'm going to throw this your way. Um, so this is a question about Afghanistan and I guess how it connects to the security in Central Asia. You know, so Bradley, given you, I know, were, were just, you know, you were just along the Afghan-Tajik border. Uh, you know, you've seen it very recently and, and how it's changing. So the question is, if the Taliban continues to be unable to control things, and will cause problems north in Central Asia. How do you see that playing out? Oh, okay, that's a, a tricky question. Um, yeah, so just having been um, along the border, as I mentioned, you know, you see a lot of the security installations that have been set up. You can also see that the, you know, there used to be a lot of um, shuttle trade between the two sides, local markets that would open up along some of the major bridges um, connecting Afghanistan, Tajikistan, they're still currently closed. Um, As for instability, it was of course seen a lot of that um, last year. We saw refugees um, being hosted by Tajikistan, um, but we we didn't see any deeper engagement from China. It's not like we saw a sudden surge in presence from Chinese um, troops. They've also, or um, security officers, sorry, more accurately, who've been stationed um, along the border. I'm not really sure that we would see um, a major expansion um, of China's presence in a short period of time. A lot of the facilities remain reconnaissance focused information gathering and yeah i mean it's just very difficult to really comment um on that question without speculating too much um, especially (laughs) publicly on twitter yeah uh i mean obviously not trying to you know get you uh caught into hr or have a bad meeting with your boss or something but you know i think i think it's quite an interesting question you know how does that look you know if the taliban do say i mean we, we've seen instances of, say, you know, rockets getting fired, um, you know, and beyond just the Taliban, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, ISK, the Islamic State's presence in Afghanistan, which we've seen them carry out attacks. Obviously, they've been targeting the Chinese. So I guess, I mean, there is always, I mean, for as long as I have followed things, developments in Central Asia, you know, this has always been a perennial question of, you know, how does... Uh, instability in Afghanistan affect things, and it's obviously on you know every regional government's minds. Um, 
but I don't know, Chris, do you, do you want to weigh in here? Do you have any ideas about, you know, how, you know, do you see China taking on a bigger response? How do you see the Central Asian governments looking to navigate that? Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, so far so good, uh, firstly. Um, even uh, not so far so so good in terms of the Taliban and what they're doing in Afghanistan, but uh, uh, fallout after the initial takeover has been limited for Central Asia. And uh, even with, you know, for instance, Tajikistan and uh, Afghanistan, to begin with, that looked like it would be uh, a toxic relationship, but perhaps uh, Rahman was uh, just playing the situation uh, for, for, for a kind of temporary inter- advantage and perhaps to get the attention of the international community. In reality, what we see is that relationship is, is growing in terms of, for instance, uh, ec- electricity exports from, uh, from Tajikistan to Afghanistan, uh, are growing. So at the moment, uh, it's certainly something that will be on all of their minds, uh, but uh, hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't caused any uh, instability or serious instability as of yet. Um, I think Uzbekistan and another country because of the, you know, the change of regime after, or the change of leader after 2016 is views Afghanistan even under the Taliban through the prism of opportunities rather than threats especially in terms of uh, transit, uh, the railway uh, going to to Peshawar in in Pakistan via uh, Afghanistan so uh, it you know it hasn't been as dark for the region as it has I think for uh, millions of uh, ordinary Afghans but uh, uh, it is something, uh, as you mentioned, because of the non-Taliban groups um, who remain active uh, and dangerous. It is something that is on the minds of governments in the region. Okay, thanks a lot, Chris. So un- unfortunately, we're running low on time and we're going to have to end it there. Once again, this has been Talking China Eurasia, a new podcast from Radio for Europe. Uh, I want to give a big thank you to Chris Rickleton and Bradley Jardin for joining me today. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, this live conversation will also be published as a podcast um, and available on Radio for Europe's site. You can also subscribe to Talking China in Eurasia and other Radio for Europe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you like to listen. We'll be back in two weeks' time. And if you don't already, please subscribe to the China and Eurasia newsletter, which comes out every other Wednesday. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Reed Standish.